Welcome in to another episode of Home Field Advantage. Hope you're all having a great week or weekend whenever or however you may be listening to us across our great country or our great land. And from San Francisco to the Outer Banks and from El Paso to Fargo, I hope you're enjoying your time this November. It's hard to believe we're already halfway through the month. Here we are on November 15th. My name is Will Highland. Our second show of the week, pretty packed already. I, I mean, I had to cut some things that I really wanted to talk about just because I was looking for quality over quantity. And, um, you know, as we head into this is week 10 or 11 of the NFL season, depending on who's had buys, right? Everyone's played either 9, 10, or 11 games uh, after this weekend. And we'll have a pretty good, we have a pretty good picture of what the NFL looks like. The NBA has sort of been hard to follow, to be honest, given all the in-season tournaments and whatnot. It's a little bit confusing for me, but Celtics seem to be off to a good start. Boston Bruins continue to gain points even when they lose. Um, And last but not least, the Red Sox have made their way into the, um, offseason with the appointment of Craig Breslow and uh, a new pitching coach, which I'll get to in a little bit. Um, But Boston sports has sort of carried on as normal. And a lot of you as my listeners here in New England, or if you're listening around the globe, you still might be Boston sports fans. That's sort of the state where we're at. We're not going to talk much about our football team today. Um, You know, they're heading into a bye week. Um, There's a lot of drama about the quarterback and the coach. There's a lot of um, nuggets of information that have been picked up as the team has gotten back from Germany. Um, There's not a whole lot new going on. If there is, we'll certainly break in and have a special pod. But it's just rumors galore at this moment, right? The Patriots are rumored to, you know, be the um, be the team that's now thinking about the offseason before we're even done week 11 um, talking about where Bill's going to go. There's reports that Belichick is going to go to a different team already and that it's already set in stone. There's reports that Mac is going to be the third stringer and that, um, you know, it's going to be up to Will Greer and Bailey Zappi and all kinds of stuff going on right now. Every day I go on Twitter and I see a new mock draft of who's going where, if New England's drafting two, three, or four, or whatever it is. But the bottom line is this, is it's all hot air until something actually happens. And all we can talk about is what's been going on. I mean, I, I've spent a lot of time this year, uh, you know, guessing and, you know, bloviating about, you know, the possibilities of what might happen in the offseason. But all we really have is the here and now. And the here and now at this juncture is, you know, very muddy and hard to analyze. Um, There's just conflicting reports all over the place. This is exactly how I felt when the Red Sox were figuring out who was going to be their GM. It seemed like every day there was somebody being rumored. Um, So at this point, I'm not going to spend too much time talking about the Patriots drama during the bye week, unless something major happens. What I did want to talk about though, um, and this is this gained traction on Monday and Sunday night. And I, I didn't have time to get to it. 
um, Monday morning um, because I hadn't yet really read it and understood it um, is there, there, there were some controversial comments made by Megan Rapino, and I'm going to, I really don't want to get political on this show. Cause that's, I mean, that's not what I want this show to be um, at this moment in time. Like it's, it's not, you know, you tune in to hear about sports, but I think, I think it's worth like just looking at, you know, how, how certain, how certain athletes, you know, quote unquote, use their platform and really don't help anybody unite anybody. Um, there's, there's sort of this idea and it stems back to the Kaepernick stuff. And even before that, um, that there it's a dichotomy between the quote unquote, shut up and dribble people, right? They don't want you to have any, um, they don't want you to have, you know, any opinion that you share that's not about sports or your craft or your game or any of that stuff or any of those buzzwords that people use. And then there's sort of the other side, which is like athletes should be willing to, you know, use their platform to better society and whatever. And nothing should be off limits. And then there's sort of like this middle ground where a lot of people find themselves, which is. I like it when an athlete speaks up as long as it's something that I like. And I try not to fall into that third category. Um, I'm a very opinionated person. But, you know, I usually try not to fall into that category where I criticize athletes for saying something just because it's something that I might not like. I It's super hard to do in a very polarized environment. Um, but I tend to follow the advice of Michael Jordan when he says Republicans buy sneakers too, right? Like that was his famous line from the, I think the 1990s um, when asked about an election and what he's getting at. And Clay Travis wrote a book about this, which is that essentially you want to be able to speak your mind and your values but you also need to be careful that you're not saying something that's too almost too divisive in that you would lose support. Now, I don't know how many people are love Megan Rapino now anyway. She's made herself very controversial over the last, you know, 6 to 8 years. But what she said this week I think is a little bit different than anything else that she said before, like her stances on like equal pay and LGBTQ rights and Donald Trump and all this other stuff. If that's important to her and people want to hear her say that, that's one thing. Um, I, you know, I, I'm going to leave that up to certain people, whether they want their, you know, the star soccer player from their team to talk about that. But what she said this week, I think is a little bit different. And this is, again, I'm not trying to fall into that third category. I'm just trying to look at it as, is this a good thing? Is this a thing that's worthy of being a role model? If you're interested in being a role model, and she, I think she is, based on everything I've seen from her, or again, over this time period. If you're interested in being a role model, 
then you sort of need to follow the Michael Jordan advice and try not to alienate people and try not to get into the weeds with things that maybe you should just leave unsaid. And for those of you who missed it, you might be, and for those of you who didn't, you, you're probably knowing where I'm going with this. This is her quote, and I'm sorry it's taking me so long. After her injury on Sunday, she said, quote, I'm not a religious person or anything, and if there was a God, like, this is proof that there isn't. Then she went on to say, quote, this is effed up, it's just effed up, six minutes in, and I eat my Achilles, talking about her Achilles tendon. Now, look, she's a pro athlete, number one, entitled to her opinion. Number two, as an American, of course. And, you know, as long as she's okay standing for the, you know, the free speech and the flag and everything that stands for, which I'm not sure about that. All right. I promise to you I wasn't going to get political. But, you know, she's an American, okay? And I'm not just saying this because I'm a Christian, too. I'm saying this because I think it's a bad idea if you're trying to be a role model. She says, this is effed up. First of all, any use of profanity by an athlete I tend in front of a camera that's and they know they're being filmed. I, I usually don't like that, but it seems like she's interested in being role model. And look, as a pro athlete, I understand that she's upset that she, um, you know, took out her, her Achilles. Um, but you know, to, to you can express that anger without you, the use of profanity. And more importantly, without like, throwing shade on religious people like that just doesn't seem like a good use of her time and i mean let's also be real there's not a huge contingent of people that would like her in any way that happen to be in this in this uh realm you know considering you know everything we know about what she said in the past but i'm just sort of wondering like you know somebody who is all about somebody who's all about supposedly equality and equity and, you know, being a role model and being somebody that, you know, young girls in the future and even young people in general can look up to. I'm not sure like using this and using this as an excuse that there isn't, is that being your belief that there isn't a God and like, this is your way of talking about it. That's just a, a not, a not a good look for me. And, um, you know, if, if I had, if I had a child who was playing soccer and looked up to her and heard that, then I'd want to have a talk with, you know, my child about this is, I know you might like her as a soccer player, but that doesn't mean we have to like everything she says. Right. And I think that's the ultimate point here is that athletes are certainly entitled to their opinion, but if their opinion is directed negatively toward somebody who may or may not be a fan of theirs, then I think you're treading into different territory. Um, you know, it, I think it's a, a personal attack is different than you standing up against, you know, a mo- standing up against or for a movement that you, you know, support or um, don't support, you know, going against somebody's religion, somebody's race, somebody's sexual orientation. I mean, she should know these things better than anybody considering she's playing on a very diverse team and she's a diverse person herself. So I think those things to me are just off limits. Like if you as an athlete or any public figure go and criticize somebody's, um, somebody's way of life, um, because you were injured, I think it's selfish. And I think it's, um, 
not worthy of being a uh, role model. So unfortunately, in the sports world, we run into this a lot because there's microphones in front of everybody, there's cameras in front of everybody, and there's opportunities to um, really make yourself out to be somebody that maybe you're not. And in this situation that I think she just said something that was completely out of bounds, uh, no pun intended. And, and I, I hope, I hope she walks it back because I think it's, I think it's detrimental to, to our society to have this sort of language be used by um, people at, at that, at that level. So that's just my two cents. Then on the flip side, at the same time, you had a press conference by C- with C.J. Stroud, the quarterback for the Houston Texans, where he took a completely different approach. Um, uh, he was asked after their big win over the Cincinnati Bengals, you know, about his about his ability to handle handle pressure and handle the moment against a good opponent, um, given everything that's been going on and the struggles of his team in recent years and him coming in. And he said, quote, it's a lot of knowing that God won't put anything on me that I can't handle. It's not about me. It's about him and his glory. Now, much like Rapino, he's entitled to his belief. And I'm sure, you know, there are people that aren't religious that, um, you know, might think that could be quote unquote corny or strange or not addressing the point. But notice he didn't really say, and he did not say at all, anything negative about anybody else. So he was able to talk about religion as a athlete in a way that was personal to him, but not degrading of somebody else. And whether or not you, you know, share the same beliefs as CJ Stroud or not, he handled it very politely and he talked about being a being a person of faith without having, you know, to necessarily put down anybody else that didn't share his beliefs. Whereas Rapino, not being a person of faith, had no problem in using her quote unquote platform to degrade people that, you know, may be different from her. So I, I just think that there's there's a way of handling these subjects, whether it be politics, religion, social issues, whatever as an athlete and as a public figure that don't involve putting other people down. Um, and I, you know, I think even if Rapino had used profanity, but had not said the thing about God not being real, cause she got hurt. Then I think nobody would be talking about it. Um, and, you know, I understand that there, you know, the, there's different ways of thinking about all this stuff. Um, but just one thing that I've seen over the years is that, um, you know, we went from, we went from a, a, um, society that, you know, sort of celebrated differences to some, to now one where there's like one talking point and one thing in the sports world. And if you're not talking about that, um, then, you know, we, we can't really deviate, you know, if you, if you're going to talk about something that happens off the field or off the court, then you kind of got to talk about it in one way or else, you know, you find yourselves in hot water. And, you know, I think you can still have differences of opinion 
in sports without anybody degrading somebody else. So that's just my thought is maybe be more like CJ Stroud and less like Megan Rapino. Just a thought. All right, moving on here. Um, speaking of sort of off the field stuff that's gotten crazy golf, right? Live the PGA been a huge topic of conversation over the last multiple years now at this point. And news broke today that Rory McIlroy is taking himself off the PGA policy board. Now I'm old enough to remember a time when Rory McIlroy was Mr. PGA and he was going to be in this fight against Liv. But I think when push came to shove and Liv and PGA decided to merge, I think McElvoy, McElroy, I keep saying McElvoy, like I'm talking about Charlie McAvoy. McElroy, I think Roy was, I'll just say Roy. I think Rory was just left holding the bag at the end of all this, right? Like he was Mr. PGA, stand up for the integrity of the PGA, and he was the public face of it. And then when the people that he was defending went and merged with Liv, Rory kind of looked like an imbecile for standing up for those guys for so long and the integrity of the PGA if the PGA was just going to turn around and do exactly what Liv did. And so I think Rory kind of had egg on his face after all of this. And it led to a situation where he ultimately resigned from his post on the PGA policy board. Cause how is he supposed to help the PGA make policy? If he disagrees with one of their biggest policies in that they're going to merge with Liv. Um, he was actually asked at the DP World Tour Championship in Dubai last week um, about his role on the policy board and if he enjoyed it. And he said, quote, not particularly, no, not what I signed up for whatever I for whenever I went on the board. But yeah, the game of professional golf has been in flux for the last two years. And then he went on to say, again, the overall game, I think, is in really good shape. But everyone focuses on this top level because it is what it is, and it's an entertainment product, and it's a show. But the faster it gets rectified, I think the better for everyone. He's clearly talking about the merger, and he's clearly somebody who doesn't agree with it and just wants it to be finished, but he doesn't want to have a role in in the solution. Um, and honestly, I don't blame the guy. Like He's pretty much accomplished what you know any major golfer wants to accomplish, right? Winning multiple majors, being, uh, I think... At, there was a point probably at times where he's been the world number one. I don't know the, the amount of days or weeks right on top of off the top of my head, but he's no doubt been one of the most successful golfers of my adult lifetime. And for McElroy, it's, it's really going to be, it was sort of his Waterloo was not going to live, but now that that doesn't really matter to anybody anymore, he doesn't really have much to fight for on that front. And I, I just, he probably is somebody who just wants to win as many majors as he can at this point. He doesn't need to burden himself with the uh, ridiculous charade that is professional golf administration at the moment. So I really can't blame McElroy for uh, jumping off this bandwagon, uh, considering that the PGA, who he once held in such a high esteem, is pretty much leaving behind everything that he had you know, publicly lobbied for. All right, speaking of publicly lobbying, I think a lot of Red Sox fans had publicly lobbied for a new pitching coach after the disaster that has been the last few years. The Dave Bush experience was not enjoyable, 
And then I honestly forget the guy before him. I want to say it was somebody named like uh, Carl Lewis, Carl Lloyd, Carl something. Um, so the Red Sox pitching coach experience in the last few years has been not a fun one. I mean, don't never forget and never let them off the hook for the 2020 season in which I'm not sure there was a legitimate big leaguer other than Eduardo Rodriguez. And honestly, I don't even know if it was him. It it honestly could have been Nate Avaldi being the only big leaguer who ever like made an appearance for the Red Sox that year that I can remember. But anyway, never let them off the hook for that. That was a major blunder in not just their roster development, but also just the pitching coaching over the last few years has been abysmal. And so now, finally, after years of makeshift pitching staffs, Craig Breslow being a pitching centric guy goes and brings in Andrew Bailey. Now I believe the two of them were teammates on the Oakland athletics. If I remember correctly, um, I did not see that today, but I'm going to look it up. Um, and so they obviously have that relationship. They were also, um, they were also, teammates on the 2013 Red Sox, albeit for a short amount of time because Andrew Bailey was hurt and um, may, you know, may have been traveling around with the team and whatnot, but, but uh, certainly wasn't a um, mainstay in that bullpen. Yeah. He was on the Red Sox in 2013 and then 2010, 11 and 12 with the A's. And then Craig Breslow was on the A's in 2009 through 11. So yeah, they were teammates on the Oakland Athletics. That was great. Um, so they know each other. All right. And a lot of people look at this and be like, oh, it's just the guy who's, you know, another friend, you know, uh, I don't know the word for nepotism. Uh, if it's your buddy, I think some people just call that cronyism. Um, but, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of people who sort of look at this a little bit like, oh, gosh. Andrew Bailey, he never even played for us for that long because um, I think uh, he was ultimately non-tendered after the 2013 season. Um, and I think, I don't even know if he played that much in 2012 with the Red Sox. But um, anyway, there's a lot of people that are going to have some skepticism about Andrew Bailey. But, you know, he I think he was a pitching coach with the... Um, San Francisco Giants for the last two years. And then I think he might've had a job with the LA angels. If I remember correctly from the article I read this morning. Um, and I just was looking it up briefly, but he, he has gotten into it after the, after his playing career. And here, here's my take on the cronyism part of it. Even if he doesn't have a ton of experience, and even if he is somebody that Breslow knows, it's some more importantly, if you hire somebody that you know and that's your friend, you're friends with them because you trust them. Like, would you ever be friends with somebody you didn't trust? Would you ever be friends with somebody who you wouldn't, um, you know, let, you know, hold your phone for a second while you, like, went into the bathroom? You know what I mean? Like, or hold your drink at a party while you went into the bathroom? I know those are weird examples, but, like, you know, if you're friends with somebody, you there is an inherent sense of trust that you have with them. And if they were teammates, you know, and being an M being an MLB teammates, like you were basically in a brotherhood, then he trusts them. And that means he trusts them to say, no, Craig, I don't think this is what we should do. Or, 
you know, no Alex, you know, I don't think we should do that. And I don't know if there, if Bailey and Cora ever crossed paths, but I'm sure Cora had something to say about this hire, right? They're, they're not just going to hire somebody to join the field staff without Cora, you know, giving it an okay. And so if those guys trust Andrew Bailey, then I don't care about any of the other stuff because what I want is a cohesive regime, for lack of a better term, in charge in Boston. I don't want a makeshift pitching staff. I don't want people that are gunning for each other's jobs. I want there to be trust and cohesion in this group. And I want Craig Breslow to have the latitude to make a decision and hire his friend if he thinks his friend is the best person for the job and somebody he can trust. And, you know, the San Francisco Giants had a pretty damn good pitching staff in 2021 when they won 100-plus games. And if Andrew Bailey was manning that, then that's a massive hire for this Red Sox team. That's all I have to say about that. All right, speaking of people in charge and great hires, I was thinking earlier, because I listened to a radio show this afternoon, it was, in fact, Clay Travis and Buck Sexton, and they were talking about the greatest generals in American history. And I'm going off the wall here. But I thought I'd give my take. I'll give you one from World War II slash the 20th century. I'll give you one from the 1800s vis-a-vis the Civil War. And I'll give you one, of course, from uh, from either one as sort of my wild card to make up three. The The generals of the American Revolution were sort of spotty. I mean, obviously, Washington was at the top. And then, you know, there were others, like, on the periphery, um, but it was it was really hard to pinpoint leaders um, because that war was sort of you, when you're an insurgency, your leaders are on a micro level rather than a macro level a lot of times, um, and there were a lot of actually bad military decisions made by the American colonists during the uh, or colonials during the uh, during the uh, American Revolutionary War. So we're not going to get into that. Um, but what I will tell you is, just chronologically speaking, I talked about this when I talked about the most underrated presidents. I think U.S. Grant is probably the best general of the Civil War. Not just because he was the one that ultimately led the Union to victory, but he had to sort of prove himself and fight at every level. And his 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 victories in Shiloh and Vicksburg, I believe those were the two in the Western Theater, and then his promotion... Um, to leading the Army of the Potomac uh, was a tremendous moment, not only in in American military history, but also in the history of our country as it propelled him to become the president uh, during the beginning of Reconstruction. So I think U.S. Grant, not just because he's a winner and he's on the $50 bill and because I like him as a president, but he truly was one of those generals that had to fight for everything and had to see the war from different theaters. In World War II, I tend to go with Chester Nimitz just because his leadership, and I know you know people are going to say he wasn't a general, he was an admiral, yada, 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 in the Navy, different stuff. But as great as Ike was, and Ike you know, being in charge of D-Day and also being an underrated president, and as, and as great as Patton and MacArthur were, you know, I think that Nimitz, at the Battle of Midway, American morale was really hanging in the distance. You're only nine months removed from Pearl Harbor, I believe, at the time of that battle, and uh, maybe even less. And 
it was really up to Nimitz and that naval fleet that they had, you know, sort of roaming the Central Pacific to figure out what was going on and do it fast before they lost any more aircraft carriers. Because the one of the only reasons that Pearl Harbor wasn't more uh, destructive than it was was because two naval carriers happened to be out of Pearl Harbor at the time. And salvaging those two naval carriers and then using them in the Battle of the Midway for a decisive American victory over Japan was really the turning point of that Pacific War with the Japanese and a moment in time when it became clear that the United States had a strategic um, advantage over Japan with uh, their fleet. And at, at that point, um, that was that was pretty much all Nimitz. And then, uh, you know, obviously, if you've seen the movie, um, you know, with Nick Jonas and whatnot, uh, Dick Best uh, had a lot to do with that, although not a general. And then uh, there, there were a few other, you know, sort of minor um, ranking uh, military personnel that had a lot to do with that victory, but it was all under the leadership of uh, Chester Nimitz. So he's who I'd go for. And then my wild card, I know this is going to sound crazy, but it really was Robert E. Lee. And I mean, obviously there's the whole slavery question with Robert E. Lee. And obviously he was fighting for the Confederacy, not the union. Um, and, you know, he took up arms and committed treason against his country um, but he's still an American-born, West Point-educated. And so, therefore, he falls into this category. And one of the reasons he was such a good general, in my opinion, and, you know, he might not be better than Patton or MacArthur or Sherman or even Stonewall Jackson or Joshua Chamberlain or any of the other... I mean, I'm biased. I'm a Chamberlain guy. But the one thing I give Lee credit for is, I mean, that war lasted four years. And the North was outman outman the South. They had more industry than the South, and they had um, sort of a moral superiority. Of course, I think that's one way of pointing it. Uh, that's maybe putting it a little mildly. So they had all of this going against them. Plus, they were the country that had already existed, and the South was in insurgencies. And look, I'm not participating in Confederate sympathies. I promise. But I'm just saying that like he could have easily have been wiped out in you know a year, considering the strength of the North. But you know, people forget that the Confederacy started off really, really strong in that in that war. They had major blows against the Union. Um, some people call Bull Run a draw. I don't. I think that was a Confederate win. Um and and all these other things. And I know Lee wasn't involved in every single little battle. Of course, there was, uh, you know, I think I think he was at Antietam, if I remember correctly, um, which is a, one of the bloodiest days in American history. Um, and I hope I'm not misquoting anything. But I think, you know, Lee being, being a military mind is sort of a um, consensus uh, pick in American history that he was a strong military commander. And I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that the South was able to hold on for four years without getting obliterated. Um, ultimately, what goes around comes around. And, you know, for an insurgency that was uh, rooted in bad things like uh, slavery and armed rebellion and treason against their country, they sort of, uh, in my opinion, got what they deserved. 
um, at, at some points during that war with some of the humility that they were served. Um, but you know, I, I think, I mean, for, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to offend anybody. See, I started the show by saying, I don't want to degrade anybody. I hope there's no Robert E. Lee, uh, descendants out there, but all I'm saying is, um, from a sports analogy, right? If you have a coach who's, you know, an insurgent coach playing with a bad team and they're able to just hold on and stay in playoff contention till the end, then you would look at them and say, how did they make that team go that far? And it has probably had a lot to do with coaching. Likewise, with somebody like Nimitz, who is facing loss after loss after loss, and suddenly it's like, you know, you're at week 10 in the next six weeks are playoff games. That's what the Battle of Midway was for the American uh, Navy in the Pacific um, after Pearl Harbor. So all of those things. And then, you know, you throw it back to with, uh, with Grant, right? An upstart coach wasn't given a lot. Nobody believed in him. Finally gets another crack at it. Think about Bruce Cassidy, right? In the NHL fired by Washington. I think, what was it? 16 years later, 14 years later, something like that, finally gets a job again with the Boston Bruins. Brings him to a Stanley Cup in his second full season. Um, you know, then gets fired after playoff, after making the playoffs. And then, uh, and then finally wins a Stanley Cup with his new team in year one. That's pretty much like U.S. Grant. Has a really decorated career in the Mexican-American War. Finds himself out of the army. He uh, relieved himself. That way he wouldn't get dishonorably discharged. Ends up working for his dad's or his uh, wife's. It's either his wife's dad or his dad's leather factory. Before he finds his way back into the army and ultimately rises to not just be the leader of the of the Union Army, but also the leader of uh, the country post-war. So I think if you look at any of these guys, any of these great military leaders in American history or world history, you'll see a lot of traits that we see in athletics, especially with coaches. And I think in many ways, like sports is war, meaning or not in a literal sense, but in like a in a strategic sense. It's a what have you done for me lately? It's a what have you achieved? It's a wins and losses matter. And, you know, I've never served. I've never worn the uniform, so I don't want to speak for anybody in that. Um, but I think, you know, a lot of those lessons, uh, you know, are probably found in both, right? Um, and I think, you know, one thing that, that I like to think about is, you know, when we talk about like firing Bill because he sucks, you know, or, you know, uh, this guy needs to be benched because he's terrible. Like, this is not life or death. The decisions that were made to put these people in charge at given times were life and death. You know, Chester Nimitz deciding what to do with certain aircraft carriers and certain destroyers and uh, battleships at a given moment in the middle of the Pacific Ocean at the birth of a new war, he put people's lives in danger and he had to make those decisions. All right. So what, what Bill Bowser decides to do with Mac Jones in week 10 is, is not life or death. And so I, I think like, you know, perspective is a big thing with me. Um, I try and keep it. I, I don't always succeed. Um, but you know, these are just things that I think lessons we can learn from, from history and from life. Um, 
you know, kind of makes sports look a little bit small sometimes. And so, you know, which is more a consequential decision, Abraham Lincoln deciding to promote U.S. Grant or Craig Breslow hiring his friend to be the pitching coach? I mean, like, you put these things in perspective and suddenly what we talk about doesn't seem as important. But that said, I hope you enjoyed this program tonight. A little bit weird, a little bit off the wall. Um, You know, I think uh, if you agree or disagree with any of these things, we want to hear from you. This is a two-way street. Um, I certainly don't have all the answers, but sometimes I like to uh, think that I do, even if I don't. Um, And, you know, if you... If you want to stay uh, connected with the show, certainly uh, follow us on social at HomeFieldPod. We're um, we're on Instagram and X with that uh, handle. You can also follow us um, and like, share, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We're on Apple, Google, uh, Spotify, and Stitcher. And of course, if you're watching on YouTube, you can drop below and hit us to subscribe. Appreciate you guys all uh, tuning in, uh, and you have been listening to Home Field Advantage. If you liked this podcast, Please subscribe on your favorite provider, including Spotify, Apple, Google, and Stitcher. Be sure to also check us out two times a week on those platforms, on Monday and on Thursday. All of the Sportland USA programs are independent, and the opinions expressed in them do not reflect those of any other company, outlet, person, or entity.